Hello, and welcome back to another PEDRA Points of Discussion podcast installment. Our debate topic this month is should immune modulators be prescribed for skin diseases in children with Down syndrome? This program is brought to you by the PEDRA Down Syndrome Focus Study Group. Before we begin, it's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. Your moderator for the next three episodes is Dr. Jillian Rourke. Dr. Rourke is a pediatric dermatologist at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and clinical assistant professor of dermatology and pediatrics at Geisel School of Medicine. She is the founder and co-chair of PEDRA's Down Syndrome Focus Study Group, and she has a monthly Down Syndrome Dermatology Clinic at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, where she sees both children and adults with Down Syndrome. She has given many national lectures and podcasts to improve education and awareness of skin care in people with Down Syndrome. Thank you so much, Dr. Rourke. I'll hand it over to you. Great. Thank you so much, Shen. And I just wanted to thank you again and thank um, PEDRA for inviting us to talk about this really important topic. Should immune modulators be prescribed for skin disease in children with Down syndrome? So I have to say, just to start out, that this is probably the number one question that we're asked by colleagues, whether it's an email or a phone call. And Dr. Holland, you probably remember that when we gave our talk at the AAD earlier this summer, that this was probably the first question that we heard on the mics. Um, I have to say too, this is a common question asked by parents because this is a really big decision. And it's made even more complicated by the fact that there's a lack of data about safety and efficacy of these medications in the Down syndrome population. And I think parents kind of pick up on this palpable apprehension. And I think they've also brought to my attention that they feel like sometimes these medications might not be fully discussed or or are um, being avoided. So the point of this podcast today is for us to feel um, empowered to have a conversation um, with our patients with Down syndrome about these medications and to really promote shared medical decision-making when it comes to making a choice about systemic medications and their many complex skin diseases. So we're going to um, break up this podcast into three sessions. In session one, we're going to try to answer the question, what are the skin conditions seen in children with Down syndrome that might require immune modulators? We'll then move on to session two, What are the pros and cons of using immune modulators to treat skin disease in children with Down syndrome? And then session three, we'll kind of bring it all back together in a round table discussion on how to approach discussion of immune modulator treatments with patients and families. So I wanted to introduce our three panelists today. We're so fortunate to have them here with us. Um, I wanted to start first with Dr. Krishore Velodi, who's a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. And he's also medical director of the Down Syndrome Center of Western Pennsylvania. 
Thank you so much, um, Dr. Velodi, for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. I'm so glad to be here. Next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Emily Gurney, who is an assistant professor of dermatology at the University of Colorado. Thank you so much, Dr. Gurney. Thank you for having me. And uh, Dr. Christy Holland, who's associate professor of pediatric dermatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Hi, Jillian. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. So let's dive right in. Um, Dr. Velodi, not to put you in the hot seat with the first question, um, but we would love to hear about an overview of Down syndrome in the United States to kind of set the stage. How common is Down syndrome um, in the United States? Can you tell us a bit about any issues with healthcare access and delivery? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so Down syndrome is quite common. In fact, it's the most common genetic condition resulting in intellectual disability really in the world. Here in the U.S. in 2011, which was the last time I think that anyone looked into the incidents in the U.S., about one in 787 live-born babies had Down syndrome. So that works out to about 5,000 babies with Down syndrome who are born annually in the United States. Um, when we look at this, the total population, not just babies, but just total population of people with Down syndrome uh, living in the U.S., that's about 206,000 or so uh, people with Down syndrome in the U.S. And thinking about that number, that's about four times as many as were in the U.S. in 1950. So there really has been quite an increase in the number of people with Down syndrome who live in the U.S., Despite that, when we think about Down syndrome specific care, like a clinic that I run uh, here at uh, Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, they're pretty rare. There's around 70 clinics for people with Down syndrome that when studies have looked into this, serve only about 5%, maybe even less than that, of people with Down syndrome. So it's really hard for someone to get Down syndrome specific health care um, without being close, let's say, to a pretty uh, major city. And then when we think about like primary care providers who are trying to follow the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines, studies have looked at it and it's about 22 to 36% adherence to the guidelines uh, from general pediatricians. So it's really, really hard for a general pediatrician to really stay up to date with all of the things that are required or, or, or recommended for people with Down syndrome in their care. And then when we think about just regionally within the country itself, let's say in the South, for example, uh, in the Southern US, there's about 33% of patients who have Down syndrome that have to travel more than two hours to even get to their nearest Down syndrome clinic. So yeah, access is, an, is a challenge and providing adequate healthcare is a challenge. And as you all know, as pediatric dermatologists, you guys are hard to find too. And so next thing you know, it's like getting adequate general pediatric care, let alone dermatologic care is really, really hard for our families. Oh, I think you really highlight that regardless of our practice settings, we need to know about Down syndrome. And, uh, and obviously a lot of us are gonna be dermatologists listening to this who may or may not be in an academic setting. Um, so I think it, along those lines, um, I, I, I wanted to open it up to our expert pediatric dermatologists just to start talking about what are some of the skin conditions in children with Down syndrome where immune modulators, specifically biologic and JAK inhibitors um, could be considered. Dr. Gurney, I don't know if you wanna start out with that, talking about some of those conditions. Sure, so I think one thing, um, most of us who care for, for all children, particularly children in, 
um, with Down syndrome are very familiar with is an increased uh, amount of disorders of the follicular unit. So I think many of us have seen kind of an early onset folliculitis that's associated with some residual atrophy, um, now thought to be more of an inflammatory type of folliculitis that we see often quite early in our, in our patients with Down syndrome. Um, some studies estimate about 20% of, of persons with Down syndrome may have um, disorders of the follicular unit. That probably is on some level and within the same spectrum with hydradenitis, another condition I think many of us have seen quite frequently in people with Down syndrome. Um, we think that that happens at a younger age in Down syndrome, uh, as well as um, being at higher risk in general. So it's unclear at this point whether that's due to increased surveillance um, or an actual increased risk. Uh, certainly some of the immune changes we'll talk about later in Down syndrome would suggest that there probably is an increased risk, but there also are new guidelines that suggest screening persons with Down syndrome every year for hydradenitis. So it's possible we're screening and catching more cases earlier than we may in other populations. Another condition we see quite often in persons with Down syndrome is alopecia areata. It's unclear exactly what increase that rate is, but I think it's quite clear from some of the different immune mechanisms we'll again talk about later on in the podcast that there are reasons why that may be more prevalent in Down syndrome. Oh, that's great, Dr. Gurney. I think just to flesh out that point that you're talking about, about the, the new American and Canadian Hydratinitis Foundation recommendations for annual screening, um, that they didn't give an age with that, but in, in talking with people who helped write those guidelines and just knowing how young it can appear on many of our children with Down syndrome who we take care of, um, we're recommending around seven, eight years old to, to try to start screening for that. So I think that's a great overview of their adnexal conditions. Um, Dr. Holland, do you wanna elaborate on that? Uh, perhaps talking about psoriasis and other um, autoimmune conditions. Sure. Um, you know, I would say, uh, I think, you know, hydradenitis is definitely something that, um, when I think back on the, my patient population, um, that's one of the more common things, but psoriasis has been, um, more, much more challenging. I have found that the down syndrome patients that I care for have often failed several therapies as I try to find something to help control their disease. And that always, to me suggests there may be some inherent, um, mechanism, you know, in their biology that's sort of driving this. And I think as we talk, um, as Emily suggested about some of the immune mechanisms, we may understand that better. There's not a lot of good data about the incidence of psoriasis in the Down syndrome population. So I think it's an, an area of potential future study to see if there really is a true increased risk. But there have been some numbers that have uh, estimated that risk to be at about 8%. And that's in contrast to the general population where the standard incidence rate is usually quoted at around 2%. Um, so there is some suggestion that patients with psoriasis or patients with Down syndrome may be at higher risk for psoriasis. Uh, in terms of other autoimmune diseases, um, you know, we certainly see uh, vitiligo occurring in patients with Down syndrome. Uh, I happen to have a patient with, uh, with morphia, 
which is also an autoimmune skin condition, but isn't something we generally think of necessarily with Down syndrome. But he, it makes me think a lot about um, you know their auto their tendency for autoimmunity. No, I think that's great, Dr. Holland. Um, do you want to start chatting about some of these mechanisms? And I know a lot of this needs to be fleshed out, but. Um, you know, talking a bit uh, maybe about um, the air gene on chromosome 21 and, and expanding on that. Um, there, there's actually been some work done looking at uh, thymic tissue in patients with Down syndrome. And in those studies, they, they were able to demonstrate reduced expression of the air uh, protein. And this is a protein that is uh, important in establishing immune tolerance through development of T regulatory cells and, and also in the negative selection against autoreactive T cells. The unusual thing is that these patients, as you mentioned, this gene is on the chromosome 21. And so they have three copies, yet they have a reduced expression of the air gene, which is um, certainly counterintuitive. Um, and there's some hypotheses as to sort of why that might be. Interestingly, though, that the air gene has also been described as being uh, uh, the underlying cause of the autoimmune polyendocrine syndrome type one. And that shares a lot of features with Down syndrome with the uh, multiple types of autoimmune diseases. No, I think that's great. I think that's bringing us all back to our boards a bit, but um, really shows like how important it is to know those mechanisms. Um, um, can you touch upon um, Dr. Holland, uh, just briefly amyloid production and how that might play a role uh, kind of specifically with hydradenitis folliculitis and how it's linked with gamma secretase, which is probably another board question we're going for here, <laughs> but I think it's really interesting to talk about. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, story, and I think we'll probably learn more as we continue to learn more about uh, the genetics behind uh, hydradenitis um, specifically. Um, the, the amyloid precursor protein is, is also located on chromosome 21, um, and there's been, that has been looked at in detail as potentially explaining some of the dementia that the patients with Down syndrome are at risk for developing. But in uh, its role in hydradenitis um, is may, may be more related to it, its ability to stimulate keratinocyte adhesion, migration, and proliferation. Um, it also may play a role in disrupting uh, gamma secretase activity in these patients. Um, we know that there's a subset of patients with hydradenitis that have gamma secretase mutations. Uh, and in those patients, uh, we know that they can develop, or in mouse models, really, um, they, they've shown that um, mice deficient in gamma secretase can de develop epidermal cysts. They can have abnormal sebaceous gland differentiation. And there's some thought that maybe this leads to um, downstream notch signaling, but that's, that's fairly controversial. Um, the um, gamma secretase it also plays a role in processing of the amyloid precursor protein. In patients with Down syndrome, it's thought that one of the ways that they may have a relative deficiency in gamma secretase is not so much in a dysfunctional protein, 
but more in one that's perhaps busy dealing with all of the amyloid precursor protein as one of the roles of gamma secretase is in cleaving the APP. And if they, as they have in excess amounts of this, uh, the gamma secretase may be um, processing that and, um, and giving them sort of a relative deficiency and giving them the, the picture of uh, somebody who would have dysfunctional or deficient gamma secretase. It's very interesting stuff. More to come. Is, Dr. Holland, you did a really good job breaking that down without a huge PowerPoint presentation behind you. So I think that was excellent. Um, Dr. Gurney, not to, to, to um, diminish your next task, which I think may even be larger, talking about interferon and dysregulation in people with Down syndrome. Can you touch upon a couple of those points? Because I think that's really, really insightful to some of their skin conditions. Well, absolutely, Dr. Rourke. It is a complicated topic, but in simple terms, um, persons with Down syndrome have, for the most part, an extra chromosome 21. Chromosome 21 encodes four of our six interferon receptors, so they have increased signaling through the interferon pathways, and that leads to a variety of downstream effects, um, specifically increasing signaling to the JAK-STAT pathway, which if anyone in dermatology right now knows that that is the hot topic that we all um, hear about nonstop right now. Every day there's a new story about a new JAK inhibitor or a new use for, for JAK inhibitors. So certainly there's a lot of attention being paid on this um, pathway and uh, persons with Down syndrome certainly um, are kind of a unique uh, inflammatory state in that way. Um, there's multiple sort of downstream effects on our immune system um, thought to happen by that increased interferon signaling, likely leading to some of the autoimmune effects that we've talked about already here, um, in addition to many other autoimmune conditions uh, in persons with Down syndrome. The exact me mechanism for that happening is not clear, so I won't go through and speculate. I'm certainly not the right person to do that, but um, you know, a major question is how much targeting that pathway may help uh, persons with Down syndrome. I think that's a really nice transition, Dr. Gurney, to us starting to talk about some of the potential immune modulators that we might use for some of these skin conditions for hydradenitis, for psoriasis, et cetera. Um, can, you, can you touch on um, a few of those for us? And and I know that this will be said throughout our um, time together today, but you know we're limited with um, efficacy, safety data. There's no systematic reviews on any of these medications. We're really just left with case reports in the Down syndrome population. Um, but could you start out by um, discussing perhaps TNF-alpha inhibitors and then maybe touching on JAK inhibitors? Absolutely. So certainly using TNF-alpha inhibitors is very familiar to anyone practicing dermatology, but we may or may not be as comfortable using those medications in individuals with Down syndrome. So um, adalimumab is certainly one of the most widely used medications uh, for inflammatory skin conditions in dermatology. It's approved 12 plus for HS, 18 plus for psoriasis, but certainly many of us use that medication off-label. Um, in clinical trials, 40 to 60% of patients with hydradenitis had a clinical response versus 27% of controls. So modest efficacy. And I think many of us who use that medication in practice for hydradenitis have had many patients not respond. Some do, but certainly it's not um, 
It's not universally effective in, in patients with or without Down syndrome. Infliximab is another commonly used uh, intravenous TNF-alpha inhibitor used off-label for hydradenitis in many of our more severe patients, um, used for psoriasis on-label by the FDA, um, but really the optimal dosing of infliximab is clear, pretty clear for psoriasis and much less clear for hydradenitis. Um, in terms of the JAK inhibitors, certainly a whole new class of medications that many of us are developing comfort with, but you know, may still have a lot of ongoing questions about exactly what they should be used for and how they should be used. Uh, they've been used quite extensively for inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and psoriatic arthritis, but our understanding in inflammatory skin conditions is really just beginning, I think. Um, particularly in conditions like HS, we really only have case reports to go on. Um, and I think psoriasis, the data is not quite where we would want it to be yet, um, but still developing. There's of course a wonderful Pedra Pearls uh, podcast about JAK inhibitors specifically for, for atopic dermatitis. So I think we won't touch too much on that in our discussion. Um, and I think the other thing with JAK inhibitors is that it's pretty clear that in the next several years, we're probably going to have a lot more options to use that may be more targeted than what we have today. Oh, that, that's great. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Gurney. Um, Dr. Holland, can you touch on um, IL-12 and 23 and, and then IL-17 um, treatments? You know, it's this has been uh, an exciting uh, time, I think, to be a dermatologist with all of the evolving therapies that we have at our fingertips. Uh, many of these, uh, there's more groundwork uh, with our understanding of their use in psoriasis, but um, we're certainly starting to learn how they may be helpful for other conditions uh, like hydradenitis. And, uh, and so, and we know that more and more things are coming on the horizon. Um, the, you know, TNF alpha, you know, that's kind of was the beginning of the, the journey for psoriasis treatments. Uh, and so I, I think a lot of us as pediatric dermatologists probably have most experience with that because um, we tend to think about what do we have the greatest amount of safety data for. Um, so I think, you know, in order to, when we're having that discussion with families about, you know, which medication to consider, you know, this often comes up as to sort of, has it been looked at in kids? And, um, you know, the, the Down syndrome population is challenging because as you've said, you know, we have really limited data um, as it pertains specifically to them. Uh, the, uh, after the TNF-alpha inhibitors, um, we saw the development of, uh, it started to become realized that, you know, in psoriasis, the pathogenesis um, may not, TNF-alpha might not be the main molecule or the most important one. And, um, and that's where we got some of these uh, newer um, targeted therapies with IL-1223, which um, is Eustachinumab. Eustachinumab is approved down to the age of six. Um, and the, it's given every three months, um, which can be uh, a preferred option for a child who may be needle phobic. Uh, the IL-17 agents, um, sacukinumab and ixikizumab, are both approved for six years of age and older as well. So um, that's, uh, you know, for years we practiced without anything specifically approved for kids. So um, it's great that we have all of those approved uh, age of six and older. 
The secukinumab and ixekizumab, they both are administered every month. Um, so that's always part of the discussion uh, when we're making choices on treatments. And then there are uh, other uh, targeted therapies that are in uh, trials right now in the pediatric population, but aren't currently approved. And those are the IL-23 inhibitors, guselcumab, rizinkizumab, and teldrakizumab. Oh, that's great. I think I'm thinking back to our recent uh, talk given by Dr. Rich Antea at our pre-AAD meeting where he entitled it the big bang when it come to all, they came to all these medications that we have at our fingertips now. Um, I think that's a really um, kind of nice point to end on um, for session one of our um, podcast series. Um, and I think what we're going to do in the second half is really talk about side effects of these medications that we've just mentioned, and then talk specifically about spe uh, specific and special considerations in the Down syndrome population. And we'll have a little bit more of a pro-con uh, format. Um, so thank you so much for listening in to this first session, and we hope you tune in for the second one. Thank you for listening to the first episode of this Points of Discussion podcast, Should Immune Modulators Be Prescribed for Skin Diseases in Children with Down Syndrome? In our next episode, the panel will discuss the pros and cons of these treatments, and you can listen to it right now. I want to say thank you to Dr. Jillian Rourke for moderating this episode. And I'd also like to thank Drs. Velody, Gurney, and Holland for participating as our panel speakers. I'd especially like to thank our program sponsors, AbbVie Inc., Eli Lilly and Company, Sanofi Genzyme, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for their support of this independent medical education program. Pedra is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. You can learn more about this program and our other podcasts at www.pedraresearch.org. You can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And don't forget to check us out on social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Pedra Research, and LinkedIn and YouTube by searching for the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. Thanks for listening.